Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you for the tail end of February. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you once again after we took a week off last week due to some scheduling conflicts. But there are no scheduling conflicts now as we are back together. All of us are back together. We are all one. Indeed, and this week I am Dennis, the man who has fallen back into his old pattern of not finishing games and has not made any progress in Death Stranding since the last time Death Stranding was part of his nickname. <laughs> ah, some some old habits really truly die hard, don't they? Absolutely. Though well, you know it you know how it is when you get older though, it's just a thing where sometimes you have to budget your time and like sometimes video games can't take up the entirety of your evenings. Sometimes you want to watch a TV show with, you know, maybe your significant other, whatever, that kind of thing. So, you know, not to blame anyone or anything like that, but it's just a sort of thing where it's like, you know, I might have had a video game playing week one week and then maybe a couple weeks of just TV or maybe just casually playing more games that don't require, you know, a, a lot of continued um mental thought, you know, like to be in that space for long periods of time. So I might just drop into something more casual or whatever. But anyways, I'm in one of those periods now with Death Stranding. I played it for about a week and then, yeah, now I just haven't played it for, I guess, a couple of weeks. So <laughs> that's so, a problem. So do you envision yourself coming back to it in the next, uh, in the pending few weeks? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Like I was enjoying it. It's just, you know, just. TV shows became a priority over video games, and then that's, uh, <laughs> that happened. It did happen. It happens to uh, everyone, as uh, uh, there's a lot of content available out there now. Yes, yes, there is. It's uh, it's very easy to uh, fall into rabbit holes of uh, uh, just watch all of this series, and oh, this is a suggested title. Well, watch all of this, or like, oh, hey, this popped up in as uh, another title in my interface. Well, I I haven't seen that, or I've seen it before, but I liked it, so I'll just go back and rewatch it, and kind of kind of falls back to what I've said previously on this program that there's simply too much content, too much entertainment out there. It's uh, it's a lot. It's it's almost it it is too much. There's too much going on. Yeah, it's an impenetrable wall of content, as I believe you used to call it years ago, and that basically is now an understatement. <laughs> Yes, that impenetrable, impenetrable uh, wall of content has now scaled up uh, 10x and is now just uh, an overbearing fortress of content. Yeah, or like maybe an impenetrable jail cell of content. I don't know what you want to call it at this point now, but but yeah, you can you can try to you can try to add things to your list on whatever content provider you're on. But then you'll always get to that point where it's like, this list is pointless when something that, you know, suddenly catches my eye appears. It's like, oh, well, I guess I'm watching this now. Sorry, 30 things I've curated wanting to watch because I guess I'm watching Blues Brothers again or whatever, you know, like <laughs> that type of thing where it's like, oh, never mind. I guess my fancy can be tickled to a point where it just – 
a list doesn't matter. And it's just like, oh, actually, no, I just want to watch this old favorite because I know it's not going to let me down. Precisely. And also, too, you you know you've got that month before new content gets added, so it's almost like a ticking clock. Puts you under the gun. It's too much stress uh, on top of the daily stress of existence. (laughs) Though... I don't even think the new month until content thing is fair anymore since it seems like stuff can get released at any time all the time. <laughs> there's there's not like – like if anyone you know with a Netflix account can attest to, there seems to be new stuff every single day. This is true too. So then it's uh, – you know, just hammering home the fact that every day there's new stuff. Well, how do you keep up? It makes it even more impossible to keep up. Yeah. You've got no time to breathe because, oh, you've got to watch this before new stuff is added the next day. Oh, my God. Well, I guess I can't go into work. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not ridiculous like that, but yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I mean, I'm working it out to uh, an extrapolating to its uh, ridiculous conclusion. So uh, now th- it seems like a, a silly thing to say and comment that there's just too much content available. Sometimes it can feel like that. Also, people out there should understand, I'm speaking as someone who is easily overwhelmed. (laughs) That if you were ever to take me to a uh, buffet, I would starve. (laughs) Well, I mean, having been to more than one buffet with you, I know that's not necessarily (laughs) the case. (laughs) But but I do know what you mean. It's, It's analysis paralysis is a real thing where, you know, it's very easy, like, I just remember, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording and it's like, I remember back in the day, way before, you know, streaming media on the internet and stuff, when going to the video store was kind of like, you know, like that was your Friday plan just for, you know, getting content for the weekend. And you would look forward to that because it's just like, okay, now it becomes like an event unto itself and it's another thing to do. And it's just sort of like a fun thing where it's like, now I get to walk through and like look at physical cases of things and read synopsis of things as I, you know, want at my leisure, just kind of reading through. Oh, maybe I'll walk over to the comedy section. Maybe I'll, maybe I'm feeling like I should pick up a drama of some kind. Oh, maybe a documentary. No, I should probably also go grab a video game and do that. Like, so that seemed less overwhelming, even though you were literally walking into a store that was lined, that had its walls lined with content, but that felt less overwhelming because it was the, the, the limits of the store was what could be held within the store, right? Whereas now with the internet, it's like these lists of things to scroll through are seemingly endless. Like there's literally thousands of things to scroll through. And then, you know, that's for one service. Now, ah, maybe they don't have this thing I want on this other service. So I'm going to go to a different service now. I'm going to open up this other one. Oh, and it's the same thing. It's another thousands of titles to scroll through. And then, oh, maybe I'll open up this other service. And now there's like five or six of these huge services that have thousands of thousands of things to watch. And now you're just kind of like overwhelmed where it's like, what do I watch? Like there's so much to watch, but you're just kind of like, oh, I I don't know what to do. Now I've, I have choice paralysis because there's just, you know, I have (laughs) too much I could potentially be engaging in with right now. It's ridiculous. 
And then to top it all off, what is a title that perhaps you and someone else in your same space, roommate, buddy, significant other, whatever, what do they want to watch? Maybe even a family member. What do they want to watch? What is a title that, you know, both of you can agree on, which then becomes a whole other filter method that uh, takes a while to decide on as well. Yeah. So what a time to be alive where we can easily just sit back and have literally tens of thousands of entertainment titles at our fingertips and never has it been harder to figure out what the hell to watch. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty ridiculous. But um, I think that dovetails nicely into our ludicrous leadoffs. Indeed. Uh, An unprecedented uh, set of ludicrous leadoffs as – we technically have four separate ludicrous leadoffs, although they're kind of paired together in two appropriate groupings. So our first pair, ludicrous leadoffs, uh, talking about, well, tying into a topic we've spoken about really through last year and into the early part of this new calendar year, the return of cartoons from the 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah, cartoons from the 90s. I mean, it's sort of, we've long been talking about for the last like few months that nostalgia seems to be what people are mostly trading in now, but with the latest wave of um, announcements from Paramount plus in particular, I mean, we're not necessarily digging into the depth of that right now, but there's just been a few more things. It just seems like that's what these content companies are really trying to cash in on. It seems as their prime, driving force. I mean, it, it did start with the Animaniacs and, you know, well, I, I don't know if it started with the Animaniacs, but like the Animaniacs was a pretty notable one for us anyways. We looked at it and now we've seen, we're seeing a ton of other things being adapted or readapted for, you know, a new age. And it's kind of funny and also maybe a little bit sad because that's sort of what we're, if that's what's going to sell now, it's like new ideas don't do well, so let's just keep retreading the old ground that we know will do well. And is that just where we're at with as a society? The well of nostalgia you'd think is going to run out pretty soon, but until that point, uh, here we are now with, and then, and I have to say the novelty of these, uh, you know, old series, old titles coming back is going to get worn out pretty damn soon too. Especially is, with- is that true though? Well, I think it all kind of would depend on the uh, success of Paramount Plus, which we'll talk about in a minute, because, boy, howdy, um, that's a thing. Like, you and I went through the list of their new announcements prior to recording this program, and it's a stupid amount of retreads, but we'll talk about that more in a moment. Uh, But before that, uh, you mentioned Animaniacs in there as being kind of a redo of a 90s cartoon. It's already available on Hulu, uh, the first season having premiered in the middle of November. I've had a chance to catch a few episodes. I don't know if you have yet uh, through whatever means, but if you are out there listening to this, you likely enjoyed Animaniacs in the 90s, much as we did, and hopefully you have had a chance to watch it. If not, I will say it is worth your time. It is very much a good rehash, not, sorry, not even a rehash, just a new season of Animaniacs. It just felt like there was 20 years, 25 years in between old seasons and new seasons. And that's what it is. It's the same energy. And when Animaniacs was announced as coming to Hulu, it was given a two-season order. And 
just a couple weeks ago, the first season wrapped up. There's no launch date yet for the second season, but regardless of that, the execs and higher-ups at Hulu who have already announced that a third season is on order for this new version of Animaniacs. Uh, so we don't know when that will come. I would say a couple of years down the line, as season two is likely to premiere this calendar year. We don't know when, but season three, Animaniacs, of the new Animaniacs coming at some point in the future, this is good, as the original voice cast is involved, uh, a lot of the zacky or wany or wacky zany humor, which is really hard to say sometimes. <laughs> A wacky zany humor is still intact, and uh, hopefully with the uh, second season, maybe even third season, they kind of maybe bring back a few of the old characters. I mean, it's the Animaniacs, you know, the the Warner Brothers and the Warner Sister Dot, as well as Pinky and the Brain, but there could still be room for some some old characters to come back. They're very least good idea, bad idea. Yeah. So, or, I mean, you know, some of them might, or even like the the good feathers seem like they might even be relevant now again with you know the Irishman being a thing anyways like they're those guys haven't really gone away that's true that's true as well so that's our first kind of ludicrous uh, lead off there first of the four but first in this initial pairing the second one is another is the announcement of another '90s cartoon. One of the original and kind of stalwart '90s cartoons. It was one of the first Nicktoons. Uh, is now coming back in a new form on the Paramount Plus digital platform. Rugrats is being rehashed in a new version, new art form, new art style. But the original voice cast is it is all returning. Yeah, so, you know, Tommy Pickles, his friend Chucky Finster, Jill and Lil, the twins whose last name escapes me, uh, Angelica, Tommy's kind of bratty cousin who is a spoiled brat, uh, Susie Carmichael, the girl across the street, and, you know, all of them, they're all coming back, including, you know, the, the parents of all of said babies slash toddlers. Um, yeah, but, it is a, it's not a, well, here's the distinction I think that we have to draw for some of these shows. The Animaniacs feels like it's just a new, like a new three seasons to the original show because they're not really changing the art style. They're not really changing the writing style. They're not really changing anything. I think that was sort of like a stipulation of Spielberg to be back on board with, you know, um, producing a new run of Animaniacs is that, you know, it's still the old show, just new episodes. This new Rugrats is a new show. It's a new reboot, it seems, with the new art style and all that other stuff. So that's, I think, one kind of an interesting thing to kind of always have to bring up when you're talking about they're bringing X show back because it's like, are they bringing it back? Like, in what form? The original form or in a new reboot form? So the Rugrats, like Animaniacs was sort of like, just new seasons, it seems, whereas Rugrats is a reboot. Pure reboot. The new animation style they're going with is CG animation. And there was a trailer launched, uh, I guess, with this announcement. But uh, being someone in Canada, I wasn't able to access it because region coding and geolocks on things. So uh, I have seen uh, a few stills from this uh, announcement trailer and all the babies and characters look like vinyl toy figurines, which is yeah, it's interesting. And I don't know if I'm on board with that. 
yeah, it looks weird to me. I'm not super on board personally, but you know, again, you know, being a someone in the mid in their mid thirties, I was a child when Rugrats was first on, like an actual like not the age of the Rugrats or anything like that. But I want to say like we were what about twelve or maybe eleven when Rugrats was out originally. Oh God, like, uh, even younger than that because Rugrats originally debuted in ninety one. Okay, then I guess it'd be about seven or eight. So yeah, so that's, yeah. So for something like Rugrats, for me, where it's been in my brain in a certain format for, you know, the better part of almost 30 years, changing it in the way that they've changed it is strange. And perhaps even uh, off-putting to someone like you that uh, may have some element of interest, at least for nostalgic reasons, to watch an episode just to see what this new Rugrats would be about. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of one of those weird double-edged swords with the nostalgia shows, where if you're going to do a reboot, it has to sort of, like, I understand part of the reason why you're doing it is you want to draw, well, the main reason you're doing it is to draw people in and watch it, but to me, you, the people who are almost like the guaranteed ones who will watch it, if you just kind of like keep it the way it was back in the day, are the people who watched it back in the day, right? So you're running the risk of like not even having them as viewers if you change it too much. So I see something like this Rugrats reboot and I kind of like hope that they don't change it too much because they've already changed it a lot with it being this weird 3D animation now. Uh, the original uh, animation style for uh, perhaps some younger uh, listeners out there who uh, don't recall may not have seen Rugrats is uh, hand-drawn animation. I mean, this was the late 80s, early 90s, into the 90s before computers were widely used in animated programming and animated content. So it was all hand-drawn animation. And there was a roughness to the animation. There was a almost a jankiness to the lines, textures. It, like, it was rough, not really smooth. Um, you perhaps had odd proportions, odd sizes to characters, not perfect circles to things, but that was kind of an endearing quality to the show and the characters. Yeah. And now like, this- I mean, it was a, it was a classic Nicktoon very much. Like just, if you've watched any classic Nicktoons, it's right in there. Like Rugrats, Rocco's Modern Life, even old SpongeBob SquarePants, I think squeaks in as a classic Nicktoon for the oldest of the episodes. That type of thing. And now this new CG version is going to be, at least on the surface, uh, very smooth looking and uh, very cleaned up and not nearly as rough, which uh, I'm not sure uh, if that's the best course of action. But this is what uh, the higher ups at Nickelodeon Animation and also Paramount Plus are going to be going with uh, because Paramount Plus is a new digital streaming service that's going to be launching sometime this year. and had a huge amount of announcements earlier this week, we touched on the fact that there's a lot of nostalgia being retread for this Paramount Plus service, but good God, the list that you pulled up and just kind of rattled titles off earlier before we hit record on this program was ridiculous in terms of just retreads or, you know, reboots or new series, new seasons of existing properties. Yeah, so... 
yeah, the, the source I was kind of citing was screenrant.com. They had like this big list of, you know, from three days ago. I mean, it's missing a couple of things, but I mean, at a very high level, I mean, when you look at the whole list, probably 85% of the things are not new. Like, I mean, it's all going to be new content, but it's like, it's not new properties. It's literally existing properties that they're making new content with, like, be it like something like we knew that there's going to continue to be new Star Trek series. Fine. But there's other like kind of surprising things we saw in here, like, like a new Jackass movie, like they're making Jackass four, which, you know, between like the legend and myself, I believe that neither one of us think that that would be as exciting as one of the original Jackass movies. Yes. in this uh, new Jackass movie, Jackass four, uh, they'll be setting each other's walkers on fire. Yeah. They, you know, just startling someone to the point, you know, just a little bit too much. And then, just as a result, they tear their ACL. <laughs> just, it's like, sorry, Johnny, Johnny Knoxville. You're going to lose your plate, your, your, um, your upper tooth plate there that you had installed there. Anyways. Um, but yeah, they're like between like a new Beavis and Butthead movie, you know, a pet cemetery prequel, the seventh paranormal activity movie, uh, workaholics movie, like, you know, various TV shows being brought back, like Behind the Music, Criminal Minds, Frasier of all things, like iCarly even, like tons of things just kind of like based like off of pure nostalgia, be it, you know, people our age, even people 10 years younger with us, younger than us are kind of like subject to nostalgia as well. And then, you know, like among other things as well, like we're also seeing like the real world coming back, the unplugged series and yo MTV raps coming back, both from MTV back in the day. Um, yeah. So really it seems like Paramount plus is trying to be like to trade more than anyone else in nostalgia, because I guess they have a lot of like the properties that are nostalgic properties, a lot more so than a lot of the other streaming services do arguably. Uh, that's certainly what it is looking like, uh, Paramount being a movie studio and then television production studio for many, many, many years at this point. I guess that is uh, going to be their unique selling point for the Paramount Plus streaming service that is set to launch later this year. I believe we'll be launching in Canada as well, but that's another service to add to the list with Netflix uh, with Disney Plus in Canada, we have the Crave platform. In the States, there's Hulu. Uh, so yeah, how is anyone supposed to watch anything or play any oh. game? Also, just very interestingly, just a little tidbit of information because I had to look it up because I was curious. Apparently, Paramount is the fifth oldest film studio in the world. It's the second oldest film studio in the United States behind Universal Pictures. So... Yeah, it was founded in 1912, so it's got more than 100 years of history behind it. So, uh yeah, so that's why they're able to maybe do that type of things, that, that type of uh, thing. Um, yeah, you know, over like Netflix or whatever. So with all these retreads on nostalgia that Paramount Plus is uh, going to be bringing and cashing or attempting to cash in on with the uh, the new streaming service, 
Will there also be a section for the classic Paramount movies or whatnot if they've been in business for a hundred years, hundred, almost 110 years? You know, I'm sure um, they've had some classic titles, uh, classic movies that they've uh, produced through the years or, you know, just even features starring uh, movie stars of yesteryear, Clark Gable uh, or Humphrey Bogart or someone like that. I mean, probably like I would think that that would be crazy for them not to. Right. And just further cash in on the nostalgia and also just the existing properties. Yeah. But speaking of other existing properties, I mean, we have a little bit more uh, of our ludicrous leadoff stuff to get to here. I know this next one, I was a little bit confused when I first heard that they were announcing a TV show based on this property, but after they announced what they would be doing, it made a lot more sense. So out of the Paramount plus quagmire and into, um, well, really just video game land where video games are now getting television show adaptations. We starting with the company that has a lot of classic name cash to some of their properties, but doesn't seem to want to actually do anything with them as video games anymore <laughs> because they've, you know, seen the color of money from all their pachinko machines and really, uh, yeah, just are, are kind of done with this whole quote unquote video game thing. It's Konami. In case you didn't realize, they are the owners of the classic franchise Frogger. And it was announced that Frogger was coming to was being developed as a TV program. And I was initially thinking, I'm like, what the hell are they going to do with a Frogger? Like, how is that going to turn into a TV show? And then it was later announced that actually, yes, it's going to be a game show. So it's going to be a Frogger based, like, you know, something along the lines of, you know, if you remember like most extreme elimination challenge or something like that, or like even like, um, a wipeout. Yeah, Wipeout was, would be a good example. Something like Wipeout or even like going further back, like some of the Nickelodeon, like I believe Guts was the show for children where it was just sort of like, um, like, uh, obstacle course style kind of going, like real people going through obstacle courses or like, you know, if you want to look at the more extreme end of the things, like something like American Ninja Warrior or whatever, but for Frogger. Yes, so there will be spills and crashes and tumbles aplenty on the part of contestants into foam pads or foam crash pads and foam pits and whatnot. So they they will not actually yeah. be dodging live traffic. No. <laughs> That'd be a little bit too extreme, even for the Peacock Network. <laughs> because this is coming to NBC Universal's Peacock digital platform. 13 episodes have initially been ordered. Uh, there's going to be 12 Frogger-themed obstacle courses. Uh, casting is now open, so we link to the casting page on our website, thearcadeshow.com, if you want to look at it. Uh, the caveats being, if you're hearing this and you're in Canada and thinking, hey, this would be cool, I'm fairly fit, or even if you're not fit, but you enjoyed Frogger and the chance of a huge quote-unquote cash prize, and you are thinking of applying for this, it's only open to holders of a U.S. passport, and you have to be over the age of 18. Uh, but if you meet those two criteria, then you can go through the application process. I skimmed through it. It's a huge 
questionnaire thing. There's about 50 questions. If you want, you can submit uh, some some video of yourself so the producers get a sense of your personality and why you would be an entertaining person to put on television. Uh, do that as well. But Frogger, uh, the show is going to be filmed in Australia, which you might think seems odd, but probably they're going to film uh, several versions of this for regions across the globe and just do it all in one central hub. Going back to the example of Wipeout, which was really an obstacle-based show just with people crashing into foam left, right, and center, foam or pools of water, I believe that show was filmed in Brazil. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and even the uh, when there was a Canadian spinoff of it, it was also filmed in Brazil using the one set of resources, the obstacle courses and whatever that were being used for Wipeout Australia, Wipeout America, Wipeout X, Y, and Z, so... So Frogger. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Frogger coming to at some point in the future, probably next year, uh, coming to the Peacock digital platform, perhaps some other source here in Canada and other platforms around the globe. Like, okay, you can kind of see how Frogger as a game will work itself and make sense as a, as a game show. You, all right. You can see the connection and correlation between the existing game title and how it will be interpreted as a TV property. It's not like they're putting an HBO dark and gritty spin on it about the uh, trials and tribulations of a frog just trying to get to work every day. <laughs> yeah, or a frog getting crushed by a car and then almost like some Kafka-esque like, nightmare where he has to keep reliving getting run over by cars over and over again until the whole purpose of his life, which is getting across the street, is finally fulfilled no, nothing like that. It's literally just a goofy game show. However, um, Sony Pictures Television, who, you know, if in case you forgot, they're a thing, and Sony does own some video game franchises because of, you know, the PlayStation. Like, you might have kind of maybe forgot that or didn't quite click the two together in your head, which is fair because – they often are treated separately. And like, you think the PlayStation, like you don't necessarily think like you see Sony, but it almost doesn't register in the same way for whatever reason, because I guess, you know, they're another massive company and it would almost be like if Disney put out a video game machine and didn't really emphasize the Disney part of the name. But yeah, uh, Sony owns um, a lot of video game properties going back 25 years, even because of, you know, having the PlayStation, come out and when the PlayStation first came out obviously they had to kind of be responsible for some of the initial legwork when coming up with kind of launch titles and stuff themselves because third party support for a brand new console wasn't going to necessarily be a thing and among those original um franchises was Twisted Metal it was you know when you think of PlayStation 1 and like greatest hits Twisted Metal was kind of always in and amongst like, you know, the greatest hits or like a game that most people would have either the first or second Twisted Metal game, probably if you have a PlayStation. So Twisted Metal is a like, now you're hearing me talking about Twisted Metal. We were just talking about television program. Hopefully now that connection in your head is now going, Oh God, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> Which is yes. Play Sony. Pictures Television has been partnering with their PlayStation productions, you know, two Sony um, 
arms basically coming together in some handshake, if you will, to produce – or they're developing a TV series based on Twisted Metal. Now, you um, might hear this and, even and, weirder, and be concerned. Yeah, but even – like the, the weird part about this is that it actually seems like it's in good hands. <laughs> so that doesn't necessarily – like previous – quality of these good hands, you know, track record does not necessarily necessitate future results, but um, it's apparently going to be an action comedy based on an original take by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who were the writers behind Zombieland and Deadpool. So those are some pretty solid action comedy movies right there. Yeah. So this this kind of bodes well. The description that was outlined in the press release uh, descri- describes this Twisted Metal uh, series as being a show about a motor-mouthed outsider who's offered a chance at a better life, but only if uh, they can successfully deliver a mysterious package across a post-apocalyptic wasteland. With the help of a trigger-happy car thief, they'll face savage, uh, savage marauders driving vehicles of destruction and other dangers on the open road, including a deranged clown named, uh, named who, or who drives an all too familiar ice cream truck, whom fans of the show will know to be Sweet Tooth, or fans of the game will know to be Sweet Tooth. Yeah. As well as, you know, all the other classic characters in there as well, including the really stupid character of Axel. If you don't remember, Axel was the guy whose body was grafted onto that frame thing, and his body was essentially acting as the axle between two giant wheels. Ah, yes, him. Um, Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, I always thought it was ridiculous. He was one of my favorite characters to play, but he was really a dumb character design because, you know, when you think about, like, you read his backstory and it was just like, oh, he had a tragic past and abusive father and blah, 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 and in an act of pure spite, his father grafted his arms and legs onto this thing. It's like, what? <laughs> how? <laughs> what? <laughs> how would he, was his father a medical professional? Like, how did he not die in this whole thing? Like, what? None of that makes sense. Was he controlling these, the gears and stuff with his brain? What kind of a character is this? It's bananas. But, yeah. I'm, I'm curious how they're gonna introduce that character into an action comedy. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's ways they can put comedic takes on it. Uh, you know, perhaps they don't even really describe the backstory. Maybe the character of Axel is just there for comedic relief. Maybe. Because it's a ridiculous character. What, what do you do to make it serious? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. So we'll see how it all turns out. Uh, the project has only been announced. It uh, has no other details beyond that. But we do know Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, again, they will be uh, listed as executive producers helping to oversee this project, Project as will Will Arnett, Canadian Will Arnett, who, of course, has been doing comedy work for years and years. Unrested Development was the voice of BoJack Horseman, uh, is the voice of those Reese's Pieces commercials recently, so... So he will be executive producing this as well. Uh, and will this come be a title that eventually comes to some kind of Sony streaming platform? Yeah. I mean, probably. If not 
if not a full Sony streaming platform, then maybe it might just end up being a, an exclusive on, you know, the PlayStation store. Like they do have television shows that you can purchase there, whether or not, well, television shows and movies that you can purchase and or rent. I don't know what, like how successful that aspect of the PlayStation store is, but I could see this being, you know, maybe a driving factor over there until eventually they have to license it out somewhere else to get the money back <laughs> because they realize that people aren't buying it enough. And that the people who have the PlayStation store is still just a small number and there's more people out there who have Netflix or, uh, or other platforms on devices that aren't PlayStations. Maybe an Xbox, maybe it's a Roku, maybe it's a Fire Stick, Apple TV, Chromecast or something like that. So, you know, they'll just produce the content and then ship it out for other people to deal with and enjoy however they deal with and enjoy it. So, uh, again, content. There is so much content out there. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. I don't know how anyone uh, can wrap their brain around it. As I said, I get easily overwhelmed, and it's too much content. But uh, I mentioned in there Google and their Chromecast. Google, uh, beyond just being a big tech company, crunching all the data, running servers, and doing all your searches through their search engine for you, uh, they did get into the gaming uh, realm a couple of years ago with the Stadia, the poorly named attempt at a streaming box called Stadia that... We spoke about a couple of weeks ago when it was uh, announced that Google would be shutting down their in-house development for the Stadia, making it just a platform for other companies to put their games and their titles onto. Well, now we're going to talk about Google and Stadia again, but uh, in keeping with a theme that we have seen through the early part of 2021 as well. No, they're not making a new 90, new version of a 90s cartoon for it. No, no. Uh, we're talking about class action lawsuits. Yes, you know, that thing that, uh, well, mostly let's just say trigger happy Americans like to get involved with, um, because, you know, if you can sue someone for something, if there's even a smallest chance that you'll get something for it, you should take it. It's the American way. Exactly. You are entitled to something that you have to sue them for because you may have had some nominal amount of stress or unpleasantness in your existence. So someone else has to pay for that. Yeah. Now, granted, with this lawsuit, it's kind of understandable that it seems like it is actually maybe related to some possibly false advertising on the part of Google. Um, because what we're talking about, like what this class action lawsuit is about, is about whether or not the Stadia can run games at 4K resolution. Uh, it, this suit was originally filed back in October, but there's been no developments until now, basically, which is why we haven't really talked about it. Um, but yeah, as noted by, uh, PC Gamer Magazine, uh, they, they, they say that this suit says that Google, Bungie, and ID Software all misrepresented the capabilities of Stadia by saying that games like Destiny 2 and Doom Eternal could hit 4K resolution at 60 frames per second. However, neither game was playable in true 4K. Uh, the suit's basis is that anyone who purchased the Google Stadia Founders Edition, the Google Stadia Premier Edition, or a monthly Google Stadia Pro subscription did so with the intent of playing games at true 4K resolution rather than playing upscaled versions of said games. Um, so yeah, this suit was initially filed with the Supreme Court of New York, 
But uh, lawyers for ID Software filed to move to the Eastern District of New York, which is a federal court instead. Uh, so most civil suits, class action suits in particular, et cetera, et cetera, take an amount of time, well, an enormous amount of time to work their way through these court systems. And yeah, <laughs> a lot of these cases eventually end up settling either as a class or as an, on an individual basis. So yeah, they're, um, it's in progress right now. It is in progress, and uh, we shall see what becomes of this. But I can see the argument that uh, the uh, the the filers, if you will, the the uh, plaintiffs in this lawsuit uh, have, given the lackluster, not entirely well executed, and poorly communicated rollout of the Stadia. Yeah, because it was touted as being this uh, box that can do 4K and whatnot, but then there were caveats to that 4K, and then there was asterisks to that 4K as well. So um, have we really seen Google bundle something this bad recently? Like, is uh, the Stadia kind of uh, Google's most recent uh, blunder since the, or biggest blunder since the Google Glasses? I think it probably is. I mean, like Google, Google very like much has like an incubator type, you know, side of them, you know, as a giant company does, like a giant tech company kind of has to keep, um, an element of that alive, especially when they founded on those kind of principles. So like we'll see services come and go, but the services that come and go usually don't end up getting basically the national marketing push that or the international marketing push that Stadia got, which is why it's kind of surprising that it's so kind of, it, it was so kind of uh weird the way it kind of shook down. It was. And you think with the backing of a company like Google, things just would have been handled better, communicated better uh and rolled out better than what they were. But perhaps the issue is that Google is better at uh, kind of curating content rather than just creating. Yeah. Now, that being said, they have their line of Pixel phones, which are doing very well. Um, you know, the Android operating system, still a very robust operating system and whatnot. But for some reason, they still have these pockets of uh, consumer electronics where it's just kind of like, eh. They seem to flunk out on from time to time, and it uh, it's kind of entertaining to watch. Now, we'll see where this goes. I'd imagine there's going to be some level of settlement on the part of the plaintiffs and Google, where monies will be paid and the plaintiffs will get X amount, but the lawyers, of course, will get a whole lot more. So we'll see how this all plays itself out. But I, uh, yeah, I'm not entirely surprised by this, because if you can sue in the year of 2021, you do sue in the year of 2021. Yeah, especially when you're going up against one of the giant companies that you know has a trillion dollars or thereabouts. You know, the fan group of companies. Yeah, a trillion dollars uh, in evaluation uh, and also just a company that no one's really going to feel bad for if uh, they're, you know, served with a class action lawsuit. 
Like, yep. there's no real PR battle to be waged because it's Google and no one really cares. They're, they're going to be like, oh, boo-hoo, Google's crying over something. Ha-ha, their tears give me strength. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of lawsuits, there's still a uh, the formal trial part to one that is coming up in May, that being the ongoing legal fight between Epic Games and Apple, basically all starting last summer, if you don't remember, have forgotten, didn't hear about it, whatever the case might be, that uh, Epic Games decided to pick a fight with Apple over the Apple tax or the App Store tax, that 30% cut that Apple takes of every transaction for apps in the App Store. Epic Games didn't like that, thought it was some BS, and so they literally have picked a fight and deliberately picked a fight with Apple as a result. Uh, the two sides are going through, I guess, the discovery process in the lead-up to the actual formal trial proceedings. Those will come in May in front of a judge in California. But prior to that, uh, Apple has been apparently filing lawsuits left, right, and center and has now managed to drag another big game company into this fight. They're dragging Valve into the fight, uh, and they're doing it, and having Valve and have managed to basically get a judge to side with them and get and force Valve to turn over financial data on over 400 titles that have been sold on Steam in the past, I think, year to year and a half. Or no, so, sorry, since 2017. Um, now, you might think, that's a lot of titles, what the hell? And the answer is yes, it is a lot of titles. Apple, prior to this judge's statement on the part of their request for Valve's financial data, they were seeking a whole lot more data. They wanted uh, information, financial data, things of that nature, basically on everything that has been sold on Steam ever. Yeah. So they, they brought it down to just... 436 specific titles sold through Steam from 2017 onward. And I think the reason why they want that information is they want to uh, verify, you know, how these apps have been making money to make sure that everything is on the up and up, you know, in relation to the app store and whatnot, just so they don't have another Epic game situation on their hands, because I guess the Epic game situation has caused them to kind of maybe go into high alert in terms of their, you know, their interests. Indeed. And also too, I think part of their push for this financial data is to demonstrate that, Hey, Epic games, you're all complaining that, uh, you know, Apple, we at Apple have a monopoly on, on digital transactions with the app store and whatnot. And so I believe Apple's positioning for this financial data is to turn around and try and refute Epic's, uh, game, uh, Epic games claims of the app store being a monopoly and say, no, no, look, see, you've got this whole other digital marketplace right here. We're not a monopoly. This is a robust, mar robust marketplace as well. We're not just a, uh, you know, you know, the only game in town, so to speak, you can transact digitally through here as well. And they take their cut as well. So what's the big deal? Which, yeah. of course, yeah, on the surface, yes, makes sense. But at the same time, um, the App Store is exclusive to Apple devices. And anyone yeah. on a uh, Apple device has to go through the App Store. Yeah, uh, that... And that is, I think, the, the part of this that makes it kind of unique to Apple alone. 
I know they tried to ask Samsung uh, for similar information as well, uh, which, yeah, the court did find relevant to the issue at hand. So, yeah, it's um, very interesting to see that, you know, they were able to basically get financial information from Steam about this. So it's, uh, this is definitely turning into maybe a bit of a shit show. Yeah, this is uh, expanding in uh, in terms of scope and whatnot uh, beyond a fight just between Apple and Epic Games with the initial request that Apple had filed, uh, basically seeking financial data on every game ever sold on Steam. Valve turned around and said no, specifically telling the, qu- the court, quote, uh, somehow in a dispute over mobile apps, a maker of PC games that do not compete in the mobile market or sell apps is being portrayed as a key figure. It is not. Uh, the judge ultimately, re- uh, granting some scaled down version of Apple's request, told Valve, uh, quote, it's my understanding that, for lack of a better word, Apple has salted the earth with subpoenas, so don't worry, it's not just you, end quote. This yeah, is- but this is, this is very overreaching to me, like, it seems very, very kind of almost draconian on Apple's end with the amount of data and they're trying to grab from everyone. Like this is kind of like they're trying to get almost like financial internals for unrelated companies just to kind of see how they stack up. Like if there wasn't this lawsuit going on, what would the justification for that be? Could they possibly do that? Like, like that's a, that's a, the weird thing to me. Like it's basically like trying to open up or I don't know, or it would be like, I don't know, Ford basically requesting all of, you know, the Chevrolet financial data. It's like, we want to see exactly how many cars and what models sold and how much money you made on them just to make sure that, you know, everything's on the up and up here. And they probably say like, no, what are you talking about? Get your own financial information. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. And even if uh, Apple and their huge team of lawyers, the the scads and scads of lawyers that Apple has at their disposal because they're a $2 trillion company, um, along the way, with the discovery and the financial data they're getting from Valve for these 400-plus titles from Samsung for whatever they get from Samsung, they're still going to have knowledge. They may return the documentation or be forced to shred the documentation at the conclusion of this court case, but they're still going to learn things along the way. What does Apple do with that knowledge afterward? Oh, I mean, I could see them basically almost, well, I I could see them having very good business analysts or even like financial analysts going over this stuff before it gets shredded just to basically form a high level picture of like monetary flows in various different ways, maybe that they weren't considering and it that might drive Apple to do some sort of big pivot. Who knows? Like they might think, oh, actually, maybe we need to start going into this market for phones or something because of how people typically buy Samsung phones in this way or whatever. Like, or if we price things in this particular way, we can see that we might sway these people in this way. And that could be very devastating for an unrelated in ways unrelated to this particular case for companies who aren't Apple. Entirely. Uh, you know, my brain is just kind of mulling this over. Maybe do we see Apple pivot and have some sort of, you know, competitor to Steam launch for PC platforms or, 
something like that to eat the lunch of Valve? Do they just turn around and buy Valve? I mean, they're getting... That would be crazy. I mean, it would be. It'd be very costly. But if they're having access to a small amount, like a small percentage amount of uh, financial data for titles sold on Steam, you can get an idea of uh, at least, uh, you know, profit percentage, uh, uh, you know, expenditures, things of that, you know, nature. You're getting relevant financial data that... I mean, Apple and their lawyers and their analysts aren't dummies. They kind of know what to do with, you know, there's going to be something to come from this. And then eventually government regulation, but government is very slow to move. So Apple as a business can move much faster than government can regulate them. Yep, they sure can. So this is, uh, again, just Valve being forced to uh, hand over uh, financial data on 436 titles Sold from 2017 onward, a very scaled down, uh, release of information compared to the fact that Apple wanted pretty much every piece of information or every piece of financial information for any game sold on Steam ever, which would just be cuckoo bananas. Valve's argument initially too was that we are not a, a company the size of Apple. We don't have the team of people to do that. And then the judge kind of found a middle ground and said, here, this 400 from 2017 onward, Go forth and do with that. So uh, this is what Apple can do. They can just subpoena everything. They have scads of lawyers, teams of lawyers, probably three different law firms working on this exclusively with all the, I guess, partners, their underlings working on this, pouring over information, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and as we've said before, the the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the lawyers in this case are going to be set for life. Yeah. That's ultimately Absolutely. what that's ultimately what it's all going to boil down to. So uh again, the formal court proceedings between Apple and Epic Games set for May of this year at this time being. Could be delays, who knows? But uh yeah, this is going to be interesting to see also what Apple finds in these financial releases from Valve, from Samsung, from other companies we don't know who they have subpoenaed yet, and Maybe they're small enough, they just don't put up a fight because it's easier to go along with it because Apple clearly has the pockets and the legal team to do what they want. So, yeah, they're getting a whole lot of financial data. Where it goes from here remains to be seen. But we shall turn our attention now at this moment to actually discuss some relevant game information. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, it seems like everyone has been having their own uh, live stream digital event where they announced some new games. There was a new Nintendo Direct with nothing of great significance. There was a Sony State of Play event with nothing of any great significance. Uh, there was also a Pokemon live stream the other day with a slight bit of uh, titles of uh, of significance. Uh, they're not brand new mainline Pokemon games, but they are uh, well, two are, are, are remasters. One is a brand new spin-off title, but all of them coming to the Switch because... Well, no one's developing for a Nintendo handheld anymore, so this is simply where the Pokemon games will be from this day until the last day. Uh, but the Pokemon Diamond and Pearl titles are getting remasters coming to the Switch sometime later on this year. Uh, so Diamond and, Diamond and Pearl, their remakes are going to be called Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Because the Pokemon company always puts a little extra flair into the titles of these remasters. 
Yep. Going back all the way to uh, Fire Red and Leaf Green, remasters of the original games being put out on the Game Boy Advance. So they always do a little extra something something. I think there was... Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, I'm thinking back to Gold and Silver. I think they got re-released as Heart Gold and Soul Silver. Yeah, that sounds about right. Something like that. And then, I mean, Sun and Moon also... Wasn't it like solar and lunar eclipse editions or something ridiculous like that? It's something like that, yeah. So that this is just kind of what Nintendo or what the Pokemon company does with these remakes. And they're apparently going to be, quote-unquote, faithful remakes of the original Diamond and Pearl games. Uh, you'll go back to the Sinnoh region. And again, it's going to be the same game, just with the new Switch art style. So it's going to look a lot better play roughly the same, but still better. Uh, and the development of these remakes is being handled actually not by Game Freak, not by the Pokemon company themselves. Uh, it's actually being farmed out, if you will, outsourced to uh, the development studio ILCA. And it's still being overseen by the original director of uh, Pearl and, Di- or yeah, Diamond and Pearl, uh, Mr. Uh, Junichi Masuda. So if, if you want to take some heart in that, uh, don't worry, things are still going to be in good hands, but uh, these are going to be updates and look a lot better than they did originally on the DS back in 2007, which is 15 years ago, which is a long time. Yes. And also worth noting that apparently these are the first uh, redos, remakes of Pokemon games since 2014 when Ruby and Sapphire got redone for the 3DS. So kind of surprising. I thought uh, Nintendo and the Pokemon company were more... Uh, ardent about these remakes, but I guess they take their time in between. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense. But also because they, it's at least with Pokemon anyways, it seems like that's where Nintendo always seems to try to move forward. And, you know, when they when they do the remakes, they're kind of like few and far between, but they try to bring something new to the table regardless, rather than just sort of like just re-releasing the old game like we've seen them do, you know, with other remakes and or re-releases of old things like through the virtual consoles and whatnot. But yeah, like I guess on that note, we're also seeing like they're also they play pretty fast and loose with their spin-off titles. They always kind of have, whether it was Pokemon Stadium, Pokemon Snap, um things of that nature. Pokemon Go, a very big popular one, even though that wasn't developed by them, but they're they're always they've always been open to the idea of doing like spin-off titles um and you know in part of their whatever they want to call it Pokemon Direct that was released um yeah Game Freak did announce that there's going to be another one of these spin-offs as well called Pokemon Legends Arceus which is going to be an open world action RPG Pokemon game set in the feudal past of the Sinnoh region which they're just all about right now it seems uh, which is the local, which is that location of Diamond and Pearl. And this game will be releasing early 2022 for the Nintendo Switch. So there was a trailer, uh, that was shown off for this Pokemon Legends game. Again, it's set in the, it seems like, uh, the very early days of what would be quote unquote Pokemon, like predating whatever storyline and timeline there is established in red and blue. It seems like you're going back and almost building the first Pokedex with this. Like, literally set in feudal Japan times, uh, but in this 
fictional region of uh, Sinnoh, uh, many, many hundreds of years before you would see it in Diamond and Pearl. And it seems like you're going to be chasing slash hunting the god Pokemon Arceus. If I am, if my reading on uh, this Pokemon is to be, is to be correct, uh, this Arceus is, I believe, one of the, the, well, basically Pokemon Zero, the, uh, first Pokemon, then that then gave rise to all subsequent Pokemon. Hmm. Yeah. Which I assume they'll eventually establish that it's an alien come from outer space and came here to destroy and take over the planet, blah, blah, blah. That's my guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this uh, spinoff game, Pokemon Legends Arceus, uh, kind of diverges from the main Pokemon games, Diamond and Pearl and whatnot, where, yes, there's going to be battling and capturing, but... As you said, open world RPG, uh, with a greater emphasis on stealth and kind of sneaking up and surprising Pokemon in the wild, as opposed to engaging them in battle directly. Yeah, it almost sounds kind of like it's going to be like Pokemon Metal Gear Solid, because like on the website, you know, rather than the traditional capturing method of battling until they're weak and then capturing, they just say, You'll need to observe them to learn their behavior, then carefully sneak up, aim your Pokeball, and then let fly. Which, that seems like so, a wild concept for those of us who have played Pokemon from the start, because you always had to weaken Pokemon and get their health meter down quite a bit, and then try and capture them. Which, not always yeah. is a guarantee, even if they've only got, like, 10% health left. Yeah, but I guess in fairness, though, we we're used to the turn-based RPG style of Pokemon, right? So this is, from what I understand, this is actually not turn-based RPG. This is action RPG. So meaning that there's no delineation between battles and, you know, walking around in the world. So it's more like a Zelda versus a Final Fantasy, if you will. True enough. Fair point. So, uh, the, this Pokemon spinoff game, Legends Arceus, uh, will feature, uh, some familiar Pokemon, I believe, as your starting Pokemon, uh, those being Rowlet, Cyndaquil, and Oshawott as your choice of partner Pokemon to start the game. And again, gonna be, uh, focusing on the god Pokemon Arceus. What you'll have to do, what the storyline involves, remains to be seen. So, uh, yeah, uh, an interesting take on a uh, a Pokemon game, open world RPG style. Yeah, I wonder if uh, this will kind of be a uh, a test, a trial balloon, if you will, for future Pokemon games. Yeah, it very well could be. Yeah, uh, and then after this, do they kind of go in the vein of say Witcher slash Breath of the Wild and just do a giant, huge world of that size of a Witcher three of? Uh, Breath of the Wild, and just insert Pokemon into it, but have this huge, huge land for you to cover as the Pokemon trainer. Yeah. Along with a stamina meter, which, that you know, gradually goes down as you add more Pokeballs to your backpack. Yeah, and then you need to, like, manage that statistic for weight carrying that, you know, you always inevitably have to do in these types of games, where you can only actually carry X amount of Pokemon at a time before you have to dump them off in some Pokemon safe householding thing. <laughs> Anyways, it'll be very interesting. I, this does sound like a, an interesting um, 
take on Pokemon. And I'm actually kind of surprised we haven't really seen this before. Yeah, so am I. Uh, which then kind of Im- uh, implies that the Pokemon games have followed a tried and true formula prior to this point and even, uh, not really deviated unless they were just a wild spinoff game that didn't really follow any sort of uh, Pokemon traditions, like a Pokemon Go, Pokemon Snap, or even Pokemon Puzzle League were all spinoff titles, but they had really nothing to do with the, the main line series whatsoever. Yeah. And therefore, the gameplay mechanics were entirely different. So, uh, yeah, this is a spinoff with uh, different mechanics, but still in a similar universe. So it's an interesting idea. Again, set for launch in early 2022. What that all means remains to be determined. But uh, that is in the future. But perhaps at this time, we should take a few moments now to close out the show and talk about some things that are from the past, almost bookending this program, if you will, as we spoke uh, off the top about old cartoons coming back. And now we will take some time to talk about some old cartoons that are old and not coming back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, this... Uh... Although some of them could be coming back, I don't know. It seems like uh, any game, or any, not game, but any title now is fair game for a return. Uh, any property now that did exist before is also likely to exist again at some future point. Uh, remains to be seen, but yes, we are now getting into our Blast from the Past, the portion of the show where we leave you with uh, some words uh, about items celebrating milestone anniversaries. I've already spilled the beans and said that they're cartoons. We have not one, not two, but three cartoons to talk about that all kind of have dates tying around to this point in time, but set in years past. Uh, two of them were action cartoons from our our heyday of watching Saturday morning cartoons, and the other one was a very experimental cartoon from a network that uh, you wouldn't really think would be into experimental cartoons, but they were for a period of their history. Uh, so where of the three would you like to start? Well, I think what I was thinking was we could actually start with the oldest of the three because I, th- and then move forward in time because I think of the oldest of the three, this one has the greatest potential for possibly coming back in 2021 or, or onwards because it's got the greatest, I think, in terms of pop culture name cash, this is the one that has most of it. Um, not because of this particular cartoon, but I think just because of all of the stuff surrounding the franchise in general. Um, the cartoon we're talking about first here is Toxic Crusaders, which was from the early 90s, 1991. It was uh, aimed at children, which is kind of mind-blowing if you've seen what it was sort of like a spinoff of. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a spinoff of, of course, the Toxic Avenger films, which were very much not for children, adult movies, <laughs> uh, adult B movies, um, cult B movies released by Troma Entertainment, you know, with, you know, which is the, the company, uh, founded by Uncle Lloyd Kaufman. Um, yeah, so the Toxic Avenger, very much like a brutal, like the first Toxic Avenger movie anyways, like I haven't seen too many of them. I definitely saw the first one though. Kind of a brutally violent movie <laughs> and just outrageous, but which is why it was kind of surprising to see that they would release something for children using the same kind of character, Toxie being the Toxic Avenger himself. Um, 
you know, it's basically him with a bunch of, you know, children who are the toxic crusaders. From what I understand, from what I remember of this, I mean, it, it is a little bit going back in my memory banks because I do remember watching this as a kid, but again, like it was a long, long time ago. It, it 1991 was, was not yesterday. Uh, no, it wasn't yesterday. It wasn't even last week or last month. Uh, so in the setup of the Toxic Crusaders, it would be Toxie, the Toxic Crusader or Toxic Avenger himself, uh, but he's with a team of other Toxic superheroes who've been mutated by garbage, pollution, uh, radioactive waste, something like that. And basically they're all mutants and they are the Toxic Crusaders. And uh, it was actually a very pro-environment cartoon as they would take down, um, you know, uh, people causing pollution, land barons, just the evil doers of that week's episode in a very cartoony format. But they all had some sort of affectation going on that would make them new, you know, new characters, unique characters and characters you could make action figures out of as well. Yeah. Because that was also the aim for a lot of these Saturday morning cartoons through the nineties is they were all just infomercials to get kids to buy the tie in toys. Yeah. But also like a lot of the nineties cartoons, like there was actually a fair amount of cartoons that were very environmentally conscious as well. This one, you know, was one of them. This one was, you know, not the most prominent one in my brain, but definitely among there. I mean, we also grew up with Captain Planet and the Planeteers and um another very distinctly Canadian one from what I recall. It might not be Canadian, but I remember it as such was the Smoggies. Um, Smoggies, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, talking about Canadian cartoons, the raccoons as well. Yeah. Yeah, very environmentally friendly, you know, very environmentally conscious as well in various different ways. But yeah, um, Toxic Crusaders, you know, very similar in that way, even though it only had one season for 13 episodes. So we didn't get to see like a true rogues gallery kind of emerge because we only had 13 episodes for it to happen. But, you know, there was sort of, it did sort of follow from what I remember, a sort of like villain of the week type approach where, you know, we had their range of villains, including like Zar Zosta, Dr. Killamoff, Psycho, Bonehead, Miramax Grody, Poluto, General Garbage, and Radiation Rangers, who were like the anti-toxic Avengers doing the opposite thing. <laughs> but then, yeah. Which every like, pro-environment uh, cartoon had at the time, too. Yeah, like some basically like general like military force whose whole purpose was to like spread pollution and like kill trees and stuff like that. <laughs> like that's all they were, <laughs> but it doesn't really make sense. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a very weird, very weird show. Um, for so many different ways, reasons. And yeah, it's unsurprisingly only lasted one season, but yeah, I, I could see more of the toxic Avenger stuff come back in the future because you know while the children's show only lasted for one season there were ugh, how many toxic avenger movies like there was at least four maybe five that i could think of uh yeah and that was uh through the 80s into the 90s and what kind of is wild looking back on it now is the fact that uh the toxic avenger the first Toxic Avenger movie that was done by Troma that came out in 84 
84, 85, so it had time to gain an underground cult following. This Toxic Crusaders cartoon didn't happen until 91. So that's yeah. a good six, seven years for Toxic Avenger to be just an underground cult B-movie and subsequent sequels. But still, who looked at the Toxic Avenger uh first movie or se- subsequent movies and thought, you know what? I see Saturday morning kids cartoon. <laughs> I mean... Weirder things did happen, though. I mean, they did make a another, again, failed attempt at a Saturday morning kids cartoon based on Rambo. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, although I can see the template for that being somebody looking at G.I. Joe and saying, hey, there's G.I. Joe. You know, Rambo is popular, so why don't we just do G.I. Joe but with Rambo and some kids sprinkled in? And and here's the other thing about that or the the – Sort of like the the distinguishing factor. Rambo was popular. <laughs> like, was the Toxic Avenger ever Rambo popular? Not that I can ever recall or think of. Not even at its zenith would I think the Toxic Avenger franchise was as popular and well-known as Rambo. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very, very interesting. So, the Toxic Crusaders cartoon... 30 years old this week. Again, if you can find it through whatever means, uh, only lasting 13 episodes, one quote unquote season. Um, I'm sure it's out there on DVD. I'm sure it's probably out there on YouTube. At the very least, watch the intro for it because it had a really catchy intro song. <laughs> yes. And but, it, um, it will get yeah, stuck in your head. But yes, moving on. So, so which of the other two remaining cartoons should we, uh, discuss now? Um, yeah, I I know that, like, it ended close to this time, but I think, like, the next oldest, technically, was uh, Biker Mice from Mars. It debuted back in 1993, and it ended in, you know, towards the end of February of 1996. So, Toxic Crusaders, 1991, debuted in March of 1991, kept going until May of 1991, so had a very short period, but... Um, Biker Mice from Mars started in September of 1993, so a couple of years later, and it, it, you know, kept going until February 24th of 1996. So I think it's worth talking about that one next. Uh, I, I feel like we've had this one also as a blast from the past previously, but I think it's, it is worth talking about again because it's, it's a very interesting throwback to a very specific period of time in children's television when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were the most popular thing in the world. Yes, absolutely. From a television perspective, from a merchandise and toy sale perspective, uh, the Turtles were just a license to print money. And in that wake, anyone who had a production studio was looking for properties that could potentially become the next Ninja Turtles and just make it that huge on the TV screen as a cartoon and in the toy aisles at your local Toys R Us, Walmart store, whatever. And in that wake, there was just so many cartoons involving anthropomorphized animals doing action things. Uh, there was, you know, cowboys from Mumesa, street sharks famously, but biker mice from Mars as well, which I think was perhaps the next big one in the wake of uh, the, the Ninja Turtles cartoon. Yeah, I mean, I might be wrong as well, but I when I think about it, Biker Mice from Mars was the one I think that had the greatest potential 
and, and maybe had the greatest visibility after Turtles in terms of like number of toys that you could see in the toy store, um, a number of episodes for their television program because believe it or not, Biker Mice from Mars also ran, it, it ran for more than one season. It ran for three seasons and there were 65 episodes. So that's actually pretty not, impressive um, for a, uh, what was, a, you know, at the time seems like a knockoff cartoon. Yeah. And it was actually like, it was very much actually even like internally within the show, they recognized that they were a ripoff of the Ninja Turtles. I think like out of curiosity, like several years ago, I kind of like found, you know, the first season I downloaded it just out of curiosity because, you know, I hadn't seen it in a long time at that point. And I watched the first episode and at one point they make, you know, there's their April O'Neil, like they basically have like, one for one characters that like, you know, you could map to the, the Ninja Turtles version of the character and like the biker rights for Mars, um, instance of, uh, April O'Neil, like she makes some sort of thing of like, what are you guys? Oh, you're talking mice, blah, blah, blah. And then one of the biker mice for Mars just basically looks at her and is like, what were you expecting? Then looks at the camera and goes turtles. <laughs> so it was like, come on. <laughs> Like, they knew that they were ripping off the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like, basically, whole hog. Like, no, there was, it was so shameless. Like, they, there was no, there was no two bones about it. Like, that's, they knew what they were doing, and, yeah. So, in this setup, there was, uh, instead of four turtles, uh, being all brothers, there were three mice, who were literally just big bikers, who happened to be mice, and they were from the planet Mars, who came to Earth to help thwart off a uh, an alien invasion from a competing race of Martians uh, as well. Uh, and I remember, you know, as happens, all the characters have distinct, unique character designs, but the coolest one of these biker mice for me was the one who had the robot arm, which had a panel that could open up and shoot lasers. Yeah. So oh, and definitely they all had their unique weapons. They all had their bikes that all had unique weapons to them as well. And I remember uh from this time, the toys that I had the most of next to turtles, because I had, you know, a bunch of turtle figures, the turtle van and whatnot. Uh The series I had the most toys from after turtles was biker mice from Mars. Yeah. Did I care anything about the, the storyline or whatnot? No, it was just cool to watch, you know, mice drive around, and I think they were big on, like, chili dogs or something, too, or pizza. Like, basically some kind of, you know, unique to that area, be it New York pizza or Chicago dogs or something like that, but, like, you know, a food, like, a junk food item specific to the city they were in as well. May have been chili dogs or hot dogs in Chicago. Um, Yeah, because the Ninja Turtles had the New York pizza thing kind of sewn up already. That's right. So then, if they were in Chicago, they were probably all about Chicago dogs, yeah. So, uh, you know, one being, you know, basically an all white mouse. There was a big gray mouse who was the big, you know, hulking brother of the group. There was the leader who was kind of the, you know, more cool laid it, laid back mouse and whatnot. But, uh, it, it didn't really matter because they were all just, you know, standard character archetypes meant to exist and then also help move merchandise. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it did. And I, uh, I believe there was an attempt to revive it on Fox Kids, uh, like the Fox Kids cartoon block in the mid-2000s, which 
uh, I think lasted for just a brief period of time, but of course it's the original series from the nineties that, uh, people like, uh, yourself and myself will remember the most. So Biker Mice from Mars ending, uh, 25 or no more than, no, yeah, a long time ago, a long time ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, as I will not attempt to do some, uh, back of the envelope math in my head right now and also talk at the same time as I'm doing it. So that's a recipe for disaster and an incorrect answer. Instead, I'll simply move along to our third and final cartoon to talk about this week. It was, as I said off the top, an experimental cartoon that ended, uh, also about 25 years ago this week and an experimental cartoon on a network that wasn't really known for doing experimental cartoons. But they had some actually really good animated series when they had them. Of course, they don't really have them now. But, you know, there's this weird block in, like, the mid-90s when MTV had actually was a home for some good animated programming. Yeah. I mean, like, you might initially think, like, oh, yeah, of course, like, Beavis and Butthead. But for sure, Beavis and Butthead was sort of, like, the biggest one, um, followed by maybe Daria. Or like, you know, a few other ones, like maybe Celebrity Deathmatch for a while as well, or Cartoon Sushi, things like that. But they had a an imprint for a while called um, MTV's Oddities, I believe it's called, where they had a few different, like, kind of experimental things like Aeon Flux and The Max and Downtown and things like that. But perhaps one of the weirdest ones, I mean, The Max was super weird too. Let's just be clear with that. But the one that came before the max was a thing called the head. And don't worry if you've never heard of this. Uh, it was a very short lived animated series, just really obscure, really odd. The premise of the head is that there's just this average run of the mill guy living in New York who wakes up one morning and his head has become ridiculously enlarged. And there's an alien living inside his head, a small, yeah. a small wisecracking alien who lives in his head who can pop in and out at points, and now the guy has to go through his life with this giant head, with an alien living in it. And the alien is living inside his head because, well, he needs it to help acclimatize to Earth and its environment. And so his head, this guy's head is the best place to do it. So I think the best way to describe the head is it would, it would kind of be like an alt cartoon. Yeah, I could see that. Like, sort of giving rise, like, even though it was more adult-oriented, from what I recall of it, like, I mean, I, I don't remember seeing too many episodes of it, but I do remember it being around at the time. Um, it's sort of like an adult version, or, like, more oriented towards, like, older teens or, like, you know, young adults, or adults in general, I would say. Um, sort of, like, giving rise to some other weirder cartoons later on, like, you know, something like... uh like an adventure time or something like that, where you could just kind of see the influence where it was just like kind of unafraid to do strange, weird things with animation. Absolutely. And as the uh, series went on, you were introduced to other characters that had similar weird properties to them. Maybe not a giant head, but perhaps a, uh, a giant nose and some buck teeth or a guy with a lawnmower blade just lodged into his cranium. And somehow similar to the toxic crusaders, they became a team to help, uh, you know, the alien. And I believe the alien's name was Roy who lived in this guy's head, you know, help them fight off an alien, you know, evil alien invasion. So 
of course, the guy who had the alien living in his head also went to therapy as well and then had to explain to his therapist why he had an alien living in his head and how that was treated. So if I recall correctly, I think the head, unlike, say, the Max or Aeon Flux, you know, wasn't based on an underground comic book or anything like that. I think it was a whole cloth original creation that kind of started life as like a, a short animated film or short animated, almost short animatic, if you will, just short animated piece that then kind of gave rise to this very short-lived cartoon series from a time when MTV was actually going to branch out and start to do more experimental content. Like MTV started life as being the music station, literally music television, playing music videos, and then they would have music-themed programming. But then in the late 80s into the 90s, they started to move away from music-related programming into not music-related programming. And then we got things such as The Real World, which is coming back on Paramount+. Plus. And then also Beavis and Butthead, and also Daria, and then also something like The Head, and then later on The Max, and then Aeon Flux as well. Like, they had the oddities section, I guess, later at night or even on weekends, where you could just throw weird crap at it and see what sticks. Yeah, and I do think a lot of that actually came from Liquid Television as well, which was sort of like... um Almost like a, like just sort of like a weird animation showcase that they would just give creators a space to do like little shorts, which I do know that Aeon Flux and Beavis and Butthead did come from there. Um, and then later on, Cartoon Sushi's served the same kind of, uh, purpose as well. But yeah, like MTV, like they did do like some incubation of some weird experimental programming. And yeah, like it, it, it does seem a little bit kind of jarring to think that like they were mostly music videos and then they became not, but it, it was kind of a gradual thing as well. It was very much a, a gradual progression away from it to serve up content that, uh, the, the demographic of people who would watch MTV would want to watch after maybe they got tired of, of music or music videos, music content or whatnot. Well, here's something else you might be interested in. But you raise an interesting point there. The concept of MTV slash in general, a broadcast network incubating weird, obscure content that I don't know if we're really going to see these days now, given the reliance on channels slash uh, broadcasters slash digital streamers to rely on nostalgia and existing properties. No, like the the place that you see the incubation happen now is with large YouTube creators kind of taking a chance now. And I think that that is sort of um, the shift that's happened. So like, you'll still see a place for incubation, like be it like on someone who has like, you know, infrastructure and money with a website or whatever, like now to like people with, you know, a strong um, YouTube following can, can also act as this by having like secondary channels or debuting things on their main channel or whatnot. But yeah, like the, the, the days of the big network taking a chance, it's not really there anymore, it seems. No, which is, uh. Or, well, actually, net, I should say, I should say though, Netflix does do this on occasion as well. And they're kind of a big network if you want to think about them that way. Uh, true. Uh, I mean, I mean, network is, or Netflix is also cranking out enough content where something small like this can also be drowned out very easily too. That's true. 
so then it becomes a, a greater challenge in the current media landscape to find a small thing like this and for something like the head to kind of catch on and find a small cult audience. But then again, hey, here's a property that uh, aired on MTV for a period of time. So Paramount Plus, maybe they do a reboot, extra seasons. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, just a weird time in animation in the mid nineties when you had, you know, it was kind of all over the map. You had, uh, the Saturday morning cartoon series that would really be, uh, uh, in existence to drive toy sales, you know, things like biker mice from Mars and also toxic crusaders. But then you had these weird pockets of alternative media that weren't for kids or alternative cartoons that weren't for kids and really just wild concepts like the head that existed had a small, small, small niche audience, but then we're gone pretty quickly as well and haven't really been seen or heard from again. So uh, a wild time in the mid-90s uh, for animation. Again, the head on MTV lasting only two years, uh, ending 25 years ago, as did Biker Mice from Mars after its initial three-year run or three-season run. And then prior to all that, we spoke of the Toxic Crusaders, which only lasted for 13 episodes, which is still wild to me it got 13 episodes, considering the source character it's based on was a very violent B-list character with an underground following of people who maybe weren't watching Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, or if they were, they were getting a different thing out of them than they did watching the Toxic Avenger movies. Precisely. So the Toxic Crusaders, a, a Saturday morning spinoff of the uh, Lloyd Kaufman trauma Toxic Avenger films, lasting only 13 episodes back in 1991. So, yeah, cartoon, wild times, and uh, it's only a matter of time before one, two, or all three of these cartoons we spoke about live again at some sort of digital streaming platform. <laughs> True. Yeah, that's just how it's going to be. Until, until the well has been completely run dry, someone is going to find another title to try and uh, drum up as a reboot, redo, whatever the case might be. Because that's that's just how things go. So, at least with digital streaming platforms. So, uh, but then again, that's that's all just uh, discussions and com- concepts for uh, uh, people of much higher pay grades than you and I. Indeed. But that about wraps us up for this episode of the Arcade. We thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. And we hope you can join us again next time. In the meantime, if you have thoughts, comments, or words to say about perhaps the cartoons we were just talking about, Biker Mice from Mars, Toxic Crusaders, The Head, were you one of the uh, the people in that small niche audience who watched The Head, uh, I guess, in the mid-90s on MTV slash I think it was Much Music in Canada uh, who aired it, because I don't know, because I do recall watching it, but I don't think it would have been on anywhere else but Much Music at the time. Uh, Of those three classic cartoons, which do you most want to see come back in a new form, or do you want to see any of them come back in a new form? Are you content just to let the old properties be like sleeping dogs and let them lie? Let us know your thoughts on that and pretty much anything else we covered on this episode of the arcade, you can hit us up through social media. We're on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And if you have uh, just some longer words to write, we always accept your, your written emails to our inbox info at the arcade show.com. 
And if you haven't done so already, do yourself a favor, do someone else a favor, sign up to uh, and subscribe to this program on Apple in the iTunes store and on Google play in the podcast section, there are direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the arcade show.com. So, uh, that about wraps us up for right now. So really all that's left to say is until next time. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.